Uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Chris. I'm an alcoholic. I promise I won't bang the microphones together. <laughs> really, I did that last last night, and it was not good. Uh, Alice, thank you so much uh, for for the two and the three. Uh, there were so many things. There were so many things that were said that uh, that, are, that are just just powerful, and it took me so long to realize the enormity of alcoholism and my problem. I really just thought if I could quit drinking, all the pieces of the puzzle would fall into place. And I could not have been more wrong about that. Because, because yeah, listen, I'm, I'm sober like six months, no step work, no nothing, just going to meetings. And I, I got to tell you, I was a mess. I was a scary mess. Uh, there is a recovery program that we have available. And, and for one reason or another, I'm looking back, I, I, you know, I don't even know what was guiding me toward that program. Because I'm not a joiner. I'm not somebody that's going to buy your line. Uh, you know, I know. I'm always convinced that I know. So, so I believe I believe it was it was the spirit that pushed me toward whatever I needed to be pushed toward to start to come to the conclusion that there's a recovery process I really need to engage in. Now I'm going to start with a with a couple of readings this morning, and uh, I'm going to start with the problem, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about the solution. This is one of my favorite couple of sentences. This is hidden away in Tradition 9 of the 12 and 12. And it's on page 174. It's about halfway down. It says this. Unless each AA member follows to the best of their ability our suggested 12 steps to recovery, they almost certainly sign their own death warrant. Do you think they really mean death warrant? Their drunkenness and disillusion are not penalties inflicted by people in authority. They result from their personal disobedience to spiritual principles. So what can trip me up in this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous? What, 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 is, what is the major roadblock for me to being successful and long-term recovered in this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous? Disobedience to spiritual principles. Don't you know inside that that's true? You know, we we get confronted with situations in our life, and there's this thing inside us called selfishness that pushes us in one direction. Yet we know, we know the spiritual path is a different one from from that selfishness. Selfishness, and I think. I think the more we pay attention to that, the safer we're going to be in this place called Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, that's, that's the bad news. Unless we, unless we practice to the best of our ability the 12 steps, we're walking dead people. That's the bad news. Good news is AA's 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which, if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to drink and enable the, the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. 
That's one of my favorite sentences. It's from the foreword to the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. And I just want to unpack that a little bit. What are the 12 Steps? They're a group of spiritual principles. What happens if I practice them as a way of life? They expel the obsession to drink. I will be released from the obsession to drink. I always tried to fight it. I always tried to outsmart it. And, and I always try to manage around it. How about we get released from it through the practice of these spiritual principles? And the best part is I will become happily and usefully whole. That's what, that's what whiskey used to make me feel like for five minutes before I became a vomiting pig. I would feel happily and usefully whole. You know, I, I felt good. Ah, I feel good and I'm useful. Let me give you some advice. You know, I'd be sitting at a bar next, next to a surgeon and I'd be like, what kind of scalpel do you use, you know? Why do you use that scalpel? You, you, know, you know, like I knew everything. I was, use, I, I was useful. I'm actually useful today. So, so that's really the problem. And I, and I thought the problem was my over-drinking, my, my, my being over-served. That's what I really thought my problem was. That's why I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. That's why I sought treatment, because of this, one of the symptoms of alcoholism got my attention. And it, and, and it, was, it, was, it, was, the, it was the over-drinking. Now... Now, we have to come to believe in a lot of stuff, and we have to become willing in a lot of areas. And, and there were so many things that were, were blocking me off from this. Now, I was, I was under such delusion as a drinking alcoholic and, you know, stark raving sober those first few months, I was under a lot of delusion. I, I, and there were things that I believed that were wrong. Now, now, did, did anybody ever come up to you and ask you this? What is wrong with you? <laughs> I used to get that all the time, right? And, and you know, it would be a surprising question that, that, that you know, I was a little confused about. And, and I would usually just... I usually just turn it around like like I'd, I'd driven into your driveway and parked on your cat, you know, or something. And and, and you're overreacting, you, you know, or something. Well, what is wrong with you? And, and I'd be like, what's wrong with you, you know? There's cats everywhere. You know, I mean, I just, I just, I, I, I couldn't see, I couldn't see, I couldn't see the, the depth of the damage that alcoholism had caused me. Now, I believe this. I believe you won't know what's wrong with you until you do a four-step. I don't think you'll really understand until you do a four-step. Now, um, now, I love this line. I'm going to read this line, and then I'm going to move into the four-step. It says, um, being convinced that self manifested in various ways what was what had defeated us 
we considered its common manifestations. Now, the 12-step program of recovery is amazing. It's, a, it's just amazing to me. The more I work the steps, the longer I've been around, the more I pay attention to this book, Alcoholics Anonymous, the more I'm, I'm amazed that they got this right. You know, a failed stockbroker who, who really wasn't even a stockbroker. He was a guy that, hey, I got a hot tip on a stock. You know, let me buy, let me buy it for you and we'll share on the profits. You know, that, that's not even really a stockbroker. And then there was, a, then there was Dr. Bob, the failed proctologist. He, you know, he had a couple of problems. One of them was he shook a lot. And the other, he had really big hands. So, so you'd be strapped down, and he'd be going after your proctor, and, and you, you'd, you'd be like, whoa, wait, 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 you know, second opinion. So, so, so nobody's using him anymore. He's about to lose his house. These are, these are the people who came up with this recovery process. I just, it's got to be God-given. It's got to be God-given. So I'm going to read this again. Being convinced that self manifested in various ways was what had defeated us. And this is almost Zen-like, right? What, what are they, what's he, self, us? Aren't we self and us? I believe after going through this book like 300 times, I believe Bill saw self as a condition. A condition. Part, our alcoholism, right? This self. It's like our alcoholism. So I was, re I was reading this book, and in this book it tells this, this really amazing story. Uh, it's uh, a, bunch of, uh, a bunch of scientists are doing a, a, lot, of, a, a lot of study uh, on, on rats and, and, and all this, and, and they, discovered, they discovered this parasite. And this parasite lives within a cat's stomach. Happy as a clam in a cat's stomach. That's where it lives. Well, when the cat defecates, what happens is mice come along and, and eat that, and then the eggs from that parasite hatch inside the mice. Now, the parasite doesn't want to be in the mouse. It wants to be in a cat. So what happens? All of a sudden, these mice start to become attracted to cats. They start running out in front of cats and getting killed and eaten, and now the parasite is back in the cat's stomach where it belongs. So this, this, this entity, this foreign entity, is causing something to do things against their own self-interest, like become attracted to cats, which is the exact opposite of what you would want to do if you're a mouse. Think about, think about alcohol. Think about alcohol. Alcohol caused us to do things that were way against our own self-interest. Think all the jackpots that you got in. Think all the times you got in trouble. Think all the people you let down. And I kind of believe that Bill is talking about this self, the, the, the alcoholism that is in our thinking, as something that has to be overcome. You can't entirely get rid of self without God's help. There's all this terminology in here. And he's saying there's various manifestations of self that have defeated us. Let's look at the most common. And that's what the four-step inventory is. And, and the fifth step is 
confessing or, or sharing you know, those manifestations of self. The sixth step is becoming willing to have God remove those manifestations of self. The seventh step is humbly asking God to remove those manifestations of self. The eighth step is putting a list of the people and the institutions that those manifestations of self have harmed. And step nine is, is making direct amends to those people and those institutions where our manifestations of self have harmed, harmed them. And step 10 is to continually watch for manifestations of self and take certain exercises, you know, when they crop, when they crop up. And step 11 is to seek through prayer and meditation to get a deeper connection to this thing that isn't self, this power greater than ourselves. And that's what this recovery program is about. And let's look at the first common manifestation of self, which is resentment. Anybody in here come into Alcoholics Anonymous a little bit pissed? <laughs> Anybody come in here a lot pissed? I did. I was mad at everybody. Listen, my life had gone down into the toilet, and, and I was upset at everybody and everything because, because I just can't. I'm a smart guy, you know, you know, you know and here, here I am. I got nothing. I got nothing going on. And, and it couldn't be my fault. It would be inconvenient to be all my fault. So I didn't think it. I thought it was your fault. I thought it was bad breaks. I thought it was misunderstandings. I thought it was crazy family. I, th I, th I thought it was selfish bosses. I thought it was vindictive police. You, know, I, you could go on and on and on. And, and I, could, I could point and tell you what my problems were. Those are my problems, you know. Fix all those and I'll be fine. That was delusion. You get through this, this fourth step and you do a fifth step the way this book says, and something remarkable will happen. You will go from believing your problems are coming at you to understanding that your problems are coming from you. And, and that's, that's a revelation. That, that's a, an enormous revelation. And you are on the path when that happens. You know, you're firmly, you're firmly within the recovery realm when that happens. So resentment. It says it's the number one offender and it kills more alcoholics than anything else. Do you want to know how it almost killed me? I'll tell you. I show up in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I absolutely have to be here. And man, I, you know, I am, I am a, a page 24 alcoholic. I am really in bad trouble. And I show up in AA, and I join, I join a home group because my sponsor told me to join this home group. So I join this home group. And, uh, and I'm going for a while to this home group, and it was a weird home group. There was like a hundred people in it, but there was a whole group of people that, that were old. I mean, they must have been 60, you know? And, uh, and they're over, they're over by the coffee pot, right? And they're talking about golf and stuff, right? And then there's these, the young people who, there's like tons of halfway houses, right? So there's a bunch of young people. I'm in, I'm in my mid thirties and I, I just don't, I just don't fit in. And no, you know, no, I'm not making friends. Nobody's talking to me. Yeah, you know, I, yeah, it just, yeah, I'm going to the meetings, but yeah, you know, it's, this, this group sucks. This group sucks. I'm out of here. Now, and I quit that, that group. Because it wasn't meeting my expectations. Well, I joined another group. 
And, uh, and this group is different. This group, there's a lot of people in their 30s. And, and, you know, I started to make friends and I started to hang out. I started to date people in this group, you know. And, and it's, you know, it's just... It's just completely insane, but we're having a lot, we're, ha we're starting to have some fun, and we're going to a bunch of meetings, and we're really starting to make our life uh, big time about AA. And then the group conscience meeting started. The slow, painful, root canal esque group consciences. There was a, so, so this is the situation. There, there was a Tuesday step meeting and a Friday speaker meeting in this home group. And all the reports were given on Tuesday. They just wanted to get to the speaker on Friday, right? So there was a guy who only went on Friday. And he had a real problem with no treasure report. How come there's no tre how come there's no treasure report? So he started calling these group conscience meetings and it turned contentious. It turned ugly. It split the room in half and we went from a hundred people, you know, one meeting after another. We went from a hundred people down to eighty people down to sixty people down to twenty people. You know, finally, finally, I, you know, I've had it. I'm out of here, right? Because I'm, I'm resentful. You know, this idiot is ruining this group because he wants to know what we're doing with his dollar, you know? And, uh, and so I'm out of here. Now, the only smart thing I did was I joined another group. And this was, this was an even worse group. This was a group where it was all professionals. It was all people who, you know, it, 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 all people who had six-figure, seven-figure incomes, and, and me, you know, with my car without a muffler, and 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 I, it was the only group left in the area, right? And I joined that. Now, in the meantime, I want to explain to you that I I learned how to do a four-step inventory, and I did the four-step, fifth step, six, seven, eight, nine, ten imperfectly, but I got about the business of recovery. And this group that wasn't even near as good as the other two that I resented myself out of, I stayed at that group for 20 years. Because these, because these deep resentments, they need to be mastered. And the tools of this inventory process allows us to do that. Let me look at this. Let me look at the first example. Bill gives a great example here. Uh, three, he gives three columns, and then later on there's another column, and there's a couple other questions that need to be asked for a full, full-blown four-step. But I'm just going to read the columns. So, so he's got column number one is I'm resentful at. Uh, column number two is the cause, and column number three affects mine. Let's just let's just look at this one. The first one is Mr. Brown, his attentions to my wife. So, so Brown is hitting on this guy's wife. Told my wife of my mistress. <laughs> Marty, isn't there a bro code against that? I mean, you just, that's just not something you do, right? And Brown may get my job at the office. So, so this Brown guy is hitting on his wife. He blew up his side thing. And he's going after the guy's job. Okay, now you, you go all the way down to the bottom. Uh, his wife, the guy's wife, uh, likes Brown. So the wife likes Brown and wants the house put in her name. Brown's going to get the house. Now let me ask you, let me ask you, has anybody ever come at you that hard? Has anybody ever come at you that hard? 
This is a great example because he's saying this resentment needs to be mastered. Can you imagine? You know, one of the greatest T-shirts, we've seen this T-shirt quite often at, at, at conventions and you know roundups like this, says, Mr. Brown needs his ass kicked. <laughs> right? Like, I get that. You know, I'm with the guy with the shirt. But these resentments kill us. Right? So even, even a resentment, even a resentment as bad as Brown has to be, has to be mastered. So it's plain that life, uh, which includes resentment and uh, deep resentment, leads only to futility and unhappiness. That's not what I want. I don't want to have a, a futile life and an unhappy life. So, so I was so inundated with resentments. It was unbelievable. These manifestations of self were killing me. I would, I would come to in the morning and pick my head up off the pillow if I was lucky enough to land in bed when I, when I, when I passed out the night before. I'd pick my head up off the pillow and the first thoughts that would go through my mind are, those bastards! I would, I would immediately go to the people and the institutions that I was mad at. You know, and, and I would plot revenge. You know, I'd have these elaborate revenge fantasies, like how I'm going to get these people, you know. Now, now that is a spiritual sickness. That is, that is a deep level of spiritual sickness. That is a parasite. You know what I mean? Now, these, these resentments need to be mastered. Now, now there's a, there's a miracle in this process. There's a, there's, there's a line of demarcation between between the three columns. So, the three, the th basically, the three columns are: um, I'm resentful at the cause and affects my. So, we need to understand what what Bill understood, and he understood that these resentments come from a belief system within us that's that something we want. Is, is being harmed, threatened, or interfered with, or something we have is being harmed, threatened, or interfered with. Without that being what we perceive, there's no, there's, there's no wind for the sale of resentment. We, there's nothing to be resentful about. So we're perceiving that there's harm, threat, or interference to our ambitions or the things that we hold as our own. And he recognizes that. So he asks us, what does it affect? What does this resentment affect? And there's basically seven areas of self. Uh, sex relations, self-esteem, uh, personal relations, pride. It, it goes on and on. And, and those, are, those, are, uh, those, those are belief systems that we have within us that we want to protect and defend. And forever, forever, I was defending things that it, it was ir irrational for me to defend. I, I spent my life defending positions and defending opinions and defending, you know, my way and how what I think about this stuff. And 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 what I, you know, the conclusion I came to after going through this inventory was I was like it was like trying to defend a turd. 
You, you know, you know what I mean. It, it's just, you know, it's it stinks and you know, you know everything, but it, but it's mine. You, you know. What what a waste of what a waste of effort. So, so as you dig into this deep, deep personal reflection, you're really uncovering some truth about a manifestation of self that's defeating you, and that's that's resentment. So there's a line of demarcation. Um, putting out of our minds the wrongs others have done, we resolutely look for our own mistakes, our own faults. Where would we where had we been in fault? So so I've never done that before. You know, I I, I understand how to be mad. I don't understand how to do prayer work and then look look for my mistakes and my faults, that's an unusual exercise for me. What do you mean? What do you mean, what did I do? But this book asks us to, to do this. And if we've had a real strong first, second, and third step experience, you know, we're going we're gonna to do this, whether we think it's going to work or not. And it asks us, where have we been selfish? Where have we been dishonest? Where have we been self-seeking? Where have we been frightened? And I can find, in every single resentment I've ever found, I've ever had, I can find my mistakes and my faults, and how I set the ball rolling, how I participated in this thing that became a resentment. I can always find it, and there's freedom. There's freedom in that revelation. I found that by the time I had finished that fourth column. Half of my resentments were gone because it says whether they were fancied or real. Half of my resentments were fancied. I would tell a story, and every time I retold the story, I would make it worse. You, you know? And, and so, so honestly looking at this stuff, honestly taking this inventory, it's about freedom. And it's about gaining access to the power. And and you just you just have to do this as a, as an alcoholic. You know it's funny. Um, I've I've met a lot of alcoholics in my time, and I've had, I've met a lot of people that have been in therapy for decades. You know they're in therapy for decades. They come into Alcoholics Anonymous and work with Harry the Plumber on a four step, and they're free. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? It, it's just this stuff is designed for us. Because we are we we are a special category of of people. I will tell you that. All right. So remember, fear is bracketed in the in the third column. It's very difficult to have a resentment without fear being attached, because we're afraid of the harm, the interference. We're, we're or, or, you know harm, threatened or interfered. We're we're afraid that something we have is is or something we want, we want. So that's a fear. So it says, notice the word fear is bracketed alongside the difficulties with Mr. Brown, Mrs. Jones, the employer, and, their, and the wife. Um, this short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. It's an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence is shot through with it. It causes trains of circumstances that blow up our spot. Every time. Now, 
If you would have come up to me when I walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous and said, Chris, you're suffering from fear, the evil and corroding thread. You know, the fabric of your existence is shot through with it, and, and it's caused a whole lot of bad things in your life. I would have said, I would have said, I would have said, get the hell out of my, get out of my face. Are you nuts? I did not think I had fear because I wasn't seeing fear the way they're talking about it in this book. I saw it as cowardice. You're telling me I'm a coward? That's not what this is saying. We're, we're, we're nuts. You know, we're, we're, you know, we do incredibly dangerous, crazy things, if you're anything like me. How we don't die of misadventure before we get here, it's just beyond me. So, so, so fear. So how I look at it today is, I look at it as anxiety. I look at what he's talking about as anxiety. The things that I am uncomfortable with, the things that I want to avoid, the things that I just don't want to do. So let me explain to you how fear almost killed me. I'm sober a minute and a half, and the meetings I'm going to are, are in Basking Ridge, New Jersey. It's a, a little little town in, in, in New Jersey. And how you got to go to the go to the meetings is they're always in a church in New Jersey. I think we have two clubhouses in the whole state. So they're always in a church. <clears throat> and they're always in the basement. So I, I would, here's, here's me going to the AA meeting. I know I have to go to the AA meeting, right? I know I have to. And, but I don't want to. I'm uncomfortable with it. So I'd drive around the block three or four times before I'd finally park. And then I'd finally talk myself into getting out of the car and going up to the church. And there'd be people outside smoking. I'd be like, oh, my God, they're going to talk to me. They might say a bunch of stuff. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I won't look. You know, and, and, I'll, and I'll, I go right past them. And then you got to go down these stairs. You go down the stairs, and then all of a sudden you walk into a room with bright, bright fluorescent lights, and everybody's having coffee and talking. And, and I'm feeling like unbelievably uncomfortable. And I'd, I'd go and I'd sit down, you know, and I'd sit there and act, act, act like I'm not completely insane. And, and this went on and on and on, probably for my first six months. That's how fear almost killed me, because when I say I'm out of here, that's like that's like that's like saying, you know, I went up to the pharmacist and he was snippy with me, you know, so I'm not getting my insulin anymore, you know, or or you know the heck with the, you know you know the heck with that dialysis place, you know they made me wait, you know it's it's like it's like insane. So, so fear almost caused me, almost caused me to not be able to sit with you because of this level of anxiety. It says fear must be overcome. It must be. So it asks us to do a fear inventory. What is our fear? Why do we have the fear? We've got to look deep into this stuff. You know, what are we afraid of? Now, now I had a I had a, a revelatory experience with this this fear part, and it was a speaker. Uh, I was listening to a to a woman give an 11 step talk, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember what she actually said, 
but this is what I heard. Yeah, if you ever, if you ever sponsor people, you, you, you know that they hear different things than you say. You know, because they quote you in a meeting, and you're like, what? <laughs> so, so I get that I probably didn't hear what she actually said. But what, but what I heard was this. All right, you know, I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. And then I went about a program of recovery to make that happen. And then I get to the 11th step where I seek through prayer and meditation a more conscious contact with this God. And then I go out and I start to help other, other the, I start to help God's children and I, I start to be of service. You know, I am firmly on God's team. What is God going to let through to me that's not in my best interest in the long term? And when I heard her say that, it was it was like, like, you know, it, it was like it was like an acid moment for me. You know, you know, it's like wow, that's true. God has got this. I'm now on God's team. What what do I have to be afraid of? So. So fear, the type of fear that kills us is the type of fear that tells us we don't need to go tonight. You know what I mean? And that has to be that has to be overcome. Now, it says uh, it says now now about sex. Now I want to put this into into context. Okay. Uh, Bill Wilson and Hank and, and all the people that were really part of the architecture of the book Alcoholics Anonymous lived in New York City. And they had just gone through the Roaring Twenties. If you know anything about the Roaring Twenties, you think we are sexually promiscuous today? We got nothing on the Roaring Twenties. They were wild, especially like in New York City. You understand? So you have to you have to take that in context. This was a this was a big challenge for all of them, especially because they're they're like they're like they're white middle class men, you know, who could get away with murder. So, but I like to look at this particular inventory as a relationship inventory, because this really isn't about sex when you start to dig into this to this inventory. It's about how we treat people. So, so <clears throat> it says we need an overhauling when we're looking at this inventory. It doesn't say we need a tune-up. It says we need an overhauling. Okay? Now, uh, now what an overhauling would be with personal relationships is all your old ideas, all your old belief systems need to be abandoned. And you need to start over with this thing called relationships. That's a heavy lift. You know, but I look back on, I look back on my life and I've, I've been unsuccessful with every single really deep relationship I had. Every single one. Listen, listen, I had honest, honest love for, for, for a lot of women. You know, as I was, as I was going through my drinking career, I honestly loved you. But if you got anywhere near me, li listen, I, I wasn't restraining order guy, 
but I was pretty close. You know what I mean? I, you know, I, what would happen is this selfishness and this self-centeredness would start to invade my my belief system about this relationship, and I'd be like, "Who were you on the phone with? Where were you? You know, you know, this is what you need to do, or I won't be happy." You know, you know and and all this stuff, and and I and I gotta tell you, any woman that had any level of sanity was like. I will be checking you later. <laughs> you, you know, you know. So, so I was unsuccessful with with my innate desire to be coupled with another person. It's it's a deep instinctual drive for me to be with someone, but I wasn't capable of it. So, so this inventory. Here, here's what here's what basically happened with me and this inventory. Uh, I started to really pay attention to it. I started to answer the questions. We reviewed our relationships thoroughly. Where had we justifiably aroused jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Where were we selfish or dishonest? You know, what, what should we have done instead? Who else did we hurt? All of these questions need to be answered for each specific relationship in my life. And I start to see, I start to see the pattern. I start to see how my behavior is getting in the way of any type of decent relationship. I have rendered myself permanently single with my selfishness. All right? It's not good news. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's true. So, so I'll, tell you, I'll tell you how I handled this. <clears throat> I really started to, I went through this entire inventory. I really started to pay attention to this stuff. And, and I answered all the questions. And, and at the end, it says, with this information, we shape a sane and sound ideal, ideal for our future sex life. I would say for our future relationships, right? So I've now identified the things that don't work. I'm to ask God, to remove these things as I move through the steps that don't work. And slowly, none of it, you got to understand, I'm, I am not a textbook example of somebody who worked a great program. I, I, I just survived long enough to be able to work at all. You know what I mean? None of this was overnight. But what happened, what happened was I changed my behavior. I started to do things like, Place the welfare of others ahead of my own. I thought that was a typo when I first read it. That made no sense at all. You know? But I, but, but, but I started to do things like that. I started to be considerate. You know? And, and, and I started to work on this particular skill set. You know, in whatever relationship I was in, if I was in or out of a relationship, I really started to work on this stuff. And what happened was, I'm about, I'm about, I'm close to 20 years sober. And there, there was a girl that I was really, really good friends with in high school, right? Her name was Andrea. She, we never really got, we never really hooked up because she was 15 and I was 19. And it, it just, I just, you know, 
I was not a good person, but I couldn't go there. You know what I mean? But we were really close. She had a boyfriend. I had a girlfriend. But but we really liked each other. We hung out. We did a ton of stuff together. I took her to see Led Zeppelin and Yes and Pink Floyd. And, you know, we would hang out. We smoked bales of marijuana together. You, you, you know what I mean? And and just just really enjoyed each other's company. And then I went off to, to Florida. She, her parents divorced, and she moved away. And I lost track of her. Honest to God, there were periods uh, over time when I, tr I tried to find her. But this is back before cell phones. This is back before email addresses. You couldn't find somebody when they were gone. You know, I, I, even, I even called up Trenton, you know, looking for every single phone book, for every single area. Try, I just could never. She had married and changed her last name. I couldn't find her. All of a sudden, Facebook pops up. This is like 2008, right? <clears throat> And I'm looking through friends of friends. And I see her. Oh, my God. Andrea. You know, so I send her, I send her a little message. Hey, you know, how you doing? I, I, you, know, I, you know, I've looked for you for years. I can't, I, can't believe, uh, I can't believe I found you. She sent an email. She sent a message back. Oh, my God. I thought you were dead. You know. <laughs> and and uh, no, I'm sober. You know. <laughs> And uh, we, 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 got, we had a cup of coffee, uh, you know, within a, within a month, you know, we were living together. You know, she looked at me one day and she goes, do you live here now? You know, because I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> you know what I mean? St stuff start, I'd start bringing stuff over, you know. I'd start not leaving, you know what I mean? I, I guess I do. I guess I do live so within a year we were married, and, and, and I, I got to tell you, we're you know we're having an absolute blast with this thing called marriage. We truly are each other's best friend, and uh, and and I and the reason I'm sharing this is because I would not have had the skill set to pull that off. I would have blown it somehow. You know what I mean? And in this inventory process. What it did was it sharpened, it sharpened my skills. I now can place your welfare ahead of my own. And, uh, and you want to be happy? You know, all the men out there, you want to be happy? Place your wife's welfare ahead of your own. That, it, it doesn't sound like it works, but you want to be happy, that's what you do. So, so let's look at step five. Having made our personal inventory, what shall we do about it? You know, there's a, there's a bunch of instructions in here about about how to find the right person. You got to understand there was two there was two groups of drunks. They weren't even Alcoholics Anonymous yet, you know, but there were two two branches of the Oxford group uh, of drunks, and and they're basically telling you, you know, how to find somebody to do a fist step. They need to be closed mouthed. They need to be understanding. They need to not try to change your mind. Uh, you know, they need to understand that this is a life and death matter. They give you all, all, this, all this input. You might want to do it with a priest. You might want to do it with an understanding friend. You might want to do it with your wife. I don't recommend that. But they, but they say it's important that you find somebody. Now, now, the act of confession, the act of confession is as old as time itself. The act of being honest about our own own particular sorry, <laughs> she's, she's, <laughs> I did it again. <laughs> uh, 
So, so the act of confessing or the, or the act of being completely honest with, with our own faults and, and mistakes is as old as life itself. We're, we don't have a monopoly on it. You know what I mean? The Catholic Church has confession. Scientology has a machine that, you, that, that tells whether you're going to lie or not, and you, you get clean after you admit everything. It's, you know, we, we, don't have a, we don't have a monopoly on this stuff. It's, it's spiritual. What, Bill didn't invent anything. Bill was an architect. He assembled materials that previously existed into a structure. That's what he did with these with these twelve steps. So this uh, this exercise of the fifth step, I found I found remarkable. Uh, I'll share my personal experience on it. The first one I did, first one I did, um, I uh, I called up my my first sponsor, Fish Food Phil, and, and I said, I'm ready. I got it. Now I still I still have this I still have the four step Marty. It's, it's it, you would put somebody in a psychiatric hospital, Marty, if you saw this first this first four step. I wrote it tiny little letters, you know. It was only like three pages, but it, but it was it was it was huge. There was so much stuff on it, and uh, and I say okay, it's time. And uh, he uh, he goes okay, uh, we're gonna go to the park. He brought us two dogs, and we went to this place called Lewis Morris Park. He goes, you're ready? I go, yeah. And, you know, and I, and I, and I, I start to read this stuff. And, uh, and I walked into the park like, like this. Like, you know, inside, I understood. I really knew I was a scumbag, right? Now, remember, I said, I said last night that my spirit was, was damaged. I had a damaged spirit, crushed spirit. And I walked into that. That fifth step inventory uh, or fifth step uh, exercise, really, really lacking any kind of healthy esteem for myself. My head was low, and I'm like ashamed. I'm, you know, I'm resentful of my mother. You know, you know, I'm reading, I'm reading all this stuff, right? And uh, and I finally get through. I finally get through it, and he goes, "Is that all?" I go, "Yeah." He goes, "Huh? Okay, that's not so bad. We can work with that." And I was, I was, I was flabbergasted. I'm like, well, what do you mean? I, you know, I thought, I thought he would say something like, "You're walking home. You're not getting in my car." You, you, you know, because because it's my ego. If I'm not the best, I'm the worst. You know, I, I can't just be run of the mill. You know, I'm not, I'm no, I'm not a run of the mill. Anything. You know what I mean? I'm special. It may be a bad special, but you know, I'm special. So. So he saw that, you know, he had, he had hurt my sensitive alcoholic feelings. So I said, wait, wait, Chris, let me explain to you. Now, we're walking through this park, and, and there, was a, there, was a, there was an old campfire, and old, all the rocks are in a, in a circle. And he goes, here's what I believe. He goes, I believe you were an alcoholic before you put alcohol in your body. I believe you were a little pre-alcoholic just waiting for alcohol. And what, what that was like was, was the, the, the red coals, the embers of the coals are just kind of smoldering. That's your alcoholism. And you took a bottle of bourbon and it was like throwing gasoline on that campfire. All of a sudden it flamed up and it burnt you and everybody around you. Now I want to say something to you, Chris. You're, you're making a serious effort to overcome these difficulties and to become a better 
person and to recover from alcoholism. Lighten up on yourself. And I walked into that fist step like this, and I walked out of it with my head level look at, looking up. It's just a big change. Now, I've had a lot of experiences <clears throat> doing fist steps. I've had even more experience in hearing them. Oh, my God, I've probably heard 400 fist steps. Uh, and one thing, one, some of the patterns that I see is, folks, we're way more the same than we are different. You know, we come in here thinking we are so different than everybody. Our, our case is so different. You know, the unique characteristics of my personality are, you know, are very difficult to understand. You know, I have real issues. And what I see hearing all these fist steps is we're, we're the same. We all have the same stuff. There's nothing in there I haven't heard before. You know what I mean? We're, we're, imp we're imperfect people. We're, we're, we're good people doing bad things. We're smart people doing stupid things. We're being driven by a hundred forms of fear, anxiety, resentment. We're being driven by this stuff. And, and here's another thing I believe. Here's another thing I believe. And I truly believe it inside. If I'm powerless over alcohol and I don't understand there's a recovery solution, I, I, don't, I don't even know one exists, so, so I'm not participating in it. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm caught up in something that's way larger than me. And I'm being driven by fear and driven by resentment and driven by self-pity and all this stuff. The stuff that I did back when I was drinking, how is it my fault? How am I responsible? I don't think I am. But you know what? You know what this 12-step this program tells me? Is I may not be responsible for all that, but I need to be accountable for all of it. And that's where all this inventory and that's where the amends and everything comes in. We must be accountable for all of this behavior. But I got to lighten up. I was doing the best I could. You know what I mean? And, and to come to that kind of a, a, a conclusion is, is very freeing. Now, um, now one of the things, one of the things that, um, that I discovered, I always wondered where Bill got this information for the fourth step. Where did he get the stuff for the selfishness and the self-centeredness and the, the, the experience of self-consciousness? Where, where did he get the, the resentment and the fear and all this stuff? Because I never could find it in the Oxford group. And I, and, and I never could find it in the, the Christian writings of, you know, Sam Shoemaker and all the people that he was listening to. And, uh, and, and because both Bill and Bob were fans of certain writers back in the 30s and 40s, I, pay, I paid attention to that. And there was one person in particular who, uh, who wrote a lot of books. He was a spiritual Christian writer who wrote a lot of books. And his name was Glenn Clark. And Glenn Clark had these retreats called the Camps Furthest Out. And Bill and Bob would go on these retreats, right? And that, that's all I basically knew about it. But I got a hold of a, I, got, I downloaded a book 
about, about a year and a half ago called Thoughts Furthest Out, writings by Glenn Clark. It was a bunch of assorted writings by this guy. And it's about, it's about 1899, and he was asked to give a lecture to a soccer team in Minnesota before their big game. It was going to be their championship game. And Glenn Clark was asked to address the soccer team. And he gets up and he starts to talk about success and failure. And he starts to talk about how selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of failure and how it leads to resentment and fear and self-pity. And I'm like, oh, my God, I think I, I think I found, I think I found, you know, where Bill got this. So, so even that, even this inventory and everything, it's nothing new. It's just, it's been put into, uh, it's been put into uh, a format where us alcoholics can under, can understand it. Now, now I believe Alcoholics Anonymous offers me two really, really big prizes. One of them is power and the other is freedom. And that doesn't come from sitting in a chair in an AA meeting. It comes from real serious work on this 12-step program. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the freedom, Olus talked about this earlier, the freedom from the bondage of self, from the, from the thinking mind, the mind that I have that wants to kill me. You ever... You understand what I'm saying? That sometimes we have a mind that wants to kill us. You know, so the freedom from the bondage of that toxic experience of self-consciousness into a spiritual consciousness, that's an unbelievable gift, folks, that, that freedom. And the power... I, I had a lack of power like you wouldn't believe, not just with alcohol. I had a lack of power to be, to be what I, I knew I needed to be. I couldn't show up. I couldn't make commitments. I couldn't progress in a career. I couldn't finish college. I couldn't do anything. I, I, had, a, I had a lack of power to be able to be consistent and persistent with anything. And what this program offers me, it offers me connection to a power greater than myself that can do for me what I cannot do for myself. Folks, this is about accessing the actual power of God so that that power can be used for the good of you and, and, and those about you. They don't even promise that in church. You know what I mean? Alcoholics Anonymous is nothing less than that, than accessing the actual power of God. And with that, I'm done. Thank you.